This is case 20 from the Mumon Khan. A person of great strength. The case. Master Shogun said, Why is it that a person of great strength does not lift up his leg? He also said, It is not with the tongue that we speak. Mumon's commentary. It should be said that Shogun pulled up all that he had in his intestines and belly. But there is nobody who can recognize this. However, even someone who realized this immediately would be given a bitter blow by me. Why? Look, if you want to know whether it is pure gold or not, you must look at it in the midst of fire. <clears throat> the verse. Raising a leg, I upturn the scented ocean. Lowering my head, I look down on the four jhana heavens. There is no place to put this gigantic body. Now you finish this poem in your own words. So since this is the 4th of July weekend, time of celebrating independence and, and freedom, freedom from oppression. I thought it would be beneficial for us to examine how do we understand freedom from oppression, from a spiritual practice. And to examine our fixed view of limited worldly power versus dynamic and boundless spiritual power. Conventionally, it seems that fighting, defeating, and removing the adversary or the oppressor will pave the way to freedom. And so as a nation, it makes sense to show the world the might of our military, brag about its prowess by displaying tanks, missiles, warplanes, precisely what happened a few days ago in, in Washington. Now, of course, personally, we may be in complete disagreement with such a juvenile display. But we can't ignore the fact that, as a nation, this is what we express to other nations. And when we show this expression to the world, we also show it to ourselves. We are witnessing it as well. And this can foster a sense of pride, nationalism, separatism, which of course leads to rejection of those who are not a part of this, whatever we call this. And many people may believe that acting in this way is necessary for the survival of a nation or a nation's sovereignty. It may even make sense. But is it truly a display of great strength? Do we actually believe that this is the way to true freedom? In other words, if we feel that our survival relies on the necessity to protect to intimidate, alienate, and spend a great deal of energy and resources to sustain this need, 
Are we not enslaved by it? Is that not another form of oppression that we ourselves create? And the way we act as a nation reflects on the way we act as individuals. And so on, as practitioners on the path of liberation, we have to examine what, are, what kind of forces operate in us. We have to be honest about how fear operates in our lives. And we have to work with the challenge of being vulnerable, of not protecting, which often can feel counterintuitive. Of course, I would like, I would want to protect and defend, especially if we've been abused in some way in the past especially if other people took advantage of us opening up and used it for some personal gain. So we become jaded and close the door, close the windows. Well, Self-preservation is, of course, a natural mechanism among all sentient beings but as human beings, we have gone way beyond the true sense of survival. And we apply this mechanism to protect what essentially does not exist. And we spend an enormous amount of time and energy to protect what we ourselves create and become enamored with. And whether we call it a nation, a self, an object, it is not more than a stagnant idea, which is the void of life and flow. Or which, is, which life and flow we see in it, we actually imbued in it. Yet we can become deeply vested and identified with it, as, as Shantideva said, magicians may indeed desire the mirage woman they themselves create. This is in relation to what we ourselves create as a self, as a separate self that can do this or do that. That can check out and check in. As long as we don't take the time to examine our conventional way of being and functioning, we remain ruled by that which we desire. And it makes sense to trust the worldly definition of strength, liberation, independence. And this koan is asking us to challenge these definitions and bring doubt to what we have come to trust. And the teacher in this case is Shogun Sugaku, 12th century Chinese Zen master from the Sung Dynasty. Shogun is closely associated with Japanese Rinzai school since his great-grandchild in the Dharma, Dayo Kokushi, brought the Rinzai sect to Japan. So Shogun made up three barriers by which to test the spiritual understanding of his disciples. 
In this koan, in this koan, Mumon brings up the first two. First one, why is it that a person of great strength does not lift up his leg? The second one, it is not with the tongue that we speak. And the third one, which is not brought up in this koan, why does an enlightened person not cut away the red strings dangling from his legs? So why is it that a person of great strength cannot lift up a leg? Also, when we look at this from a logical perspective, a person of great strength has the capacity to lift heavy loads. So the question of lifting up a leg wouldn't even appear in our minds. But Shogun is not asking us if such a person can lift up a leg. By inference, he says that a person of great strength cannot, does not have the capacity to lift up a leg. And the question he wants us to examine is, why is that? And Shibayama says that the essence of this koan should be grasped at this why. Or maybe the question should be, why do we think that we have the power to lift up a leg? transformative power of a koan of koans is found in the way they raise questions that conventionally do not exist. All we have to do is just look around and we see people who sit down at will, get up at will, lift up legs whenever they choose to do, and go wherever they want. Right? That's what everybody does, or at least it appears that we all do it by will. Isn't that how I operate? But do we know the forces that are operating in us, that are making us do what we do, say what we say, feel the way we feel? Do we look at the underlying assumptions, beliefs, fears, and karma that often dictates the way we move and the way we speak? We take it all for granted, but what practice is asking us to do is, is actually stop moving, stop speaking, and take a look, which is what we do on a daily basis. We should say this is what we are supposed to be doing during Zazen. And as you know, as we've said many times, we could be sitting in Zazen and actually make things worse if we don't look at those forces, the underlying forces that are acting behind the scenes. Or if we sit there and concoct some way of repaying or creating some kind of a way of revenge or something, you know, or getting back at someone who did something to me some time ago. Or just sit and ruminate. There are many ways to pass the time in Zazen. 
But that's not what we are meant to practice, or the way we are meant to practice. So conventionally, it's all taken for granted, but spiritually, we need to take the responsibility to examine what we tend to overlook often, and actually raise questions that make no sense. So to take the time to examine, and not just during Zazen, actually all the time. You know, last week we held a Shuso host and for Daibo. And since during such events, my, my responsibility, as a, responsibility as a teacher are actually minimal, I can sit back and observe and listen and take in and sense what's going on. And the event itself actually went very well. Dialogues were engaged, authentic, encouraging. But I wasn't just listening to that. I was looking around. I was getting a sense of what, what's going on. And I have to say, I sensed a great deal of underlying restlessness, which was expressed through body movement, facial expressions, fluctuations in attentiveness, and there is this, there's always this underlying sense of dissatisfaction. And it really doesn't matter what it's about. It's always going to find something to be unsatisfied about. Whether it's <clears throat> something somebody just said, or the way this person said it, or the trucks backing up in the parking lot the traffic, or the weather, or whatever. Here is why I am unsatisfied. But is it really that? This is what, it's very easy, and this is, this is, of course, those are the assumptions. I know why I'm unhappy. I know why I'm unsatisfied. And this is where we have to stop and look further. We have to look beyond what I think is making me unhappy and look at the sense of dissatisfaction itself, alone, just at that. Where does this come from? Not only that, does it really work? So if this person will not say this in this way, will I then be satisfied? Or if I will not feel the way I feel right now, Will that do it? I think, you know, restlessness is something that is, in a way, tying us all together. Restlessness, dissatisfaction, unease. Some more, some less. Doesn't really matter. We all feel it. We all know it. And restlessness reflects misalignment with reality. And it arises from a gap between what is actually happening and our personal feelings, judgments, opinions. It arises out of misalignment. It arises out of self-concern. And it keeps us imprisoned in self-made reality that is governed by 
an illusion of reality. Or the way we think it should be. And in that, in that sphere, lasting satisfaction always remains out of reach. Very short-lived periods of satisfaction that are very quickly interrupted by something or someone or feeling or thought. So every time we encounter a sense of restlessness, we have an opportunity to either give into it and let it govern our actions or to simply observe it and choose to not allow it to determine the way we move, the way we speak. And every time we go along with the forces of our habitual consciousness, we get further misaligned with reality and weaken our spiritual power or weaken in spiritual power. And on the other hand, every time we remain unmoved in the face of these forces, we learn to flow with the way things are. And by doing so, we cultivate true strength. So the choice to either weaken or strengthen is always there. So when I looked around, I saw all kinds of ways restlessness is, is expressing itself. And more than that, what I saw, what I, what I want to point out, is the way we go with it. We allow it to move us. We allow it to control our facial expression. And there's a lot of power, and I'm, I'm saying it from experience of working with it, not always acing it, but working with it. That's what we are supposed to be doing. That's all we are asked to do, work with it, not arrive anywhere. And what, what I'm pointing at is that every time that we don't go along with it, you, we actually, you feel empowered a lot more empowered than if you do allow it to move you. So we see something or we hear something we don't like. Do nothing. Say nothing. Don't move. And see what happens. It's a miracle. It's beautiful. When we don't give in to it. Because it subsides. Which is not the case when we do give in to it. When we give in to it, we energize it. Give it life that it does not have when it arises in us. To remain unmoved. So what is a person of great strength? How do we perceive greatness? Beyond our thoughts, beyond our definition of greatness, what is it really? If 
very famous poem by Lehman Pang, who said, my daily activities are not unusual. I'm just naturally in harmony with them. Alignment with reality. Grasping nothing, rejecting nothing. In every place, there's no hindrance, no conflict. Can we say that? Can we honestly say that in every place, no hindrance, no conflict? Can we even imagine such a state of being? And then he says, my, my supernatural power and marvelous activity, holding water and chopping wood. And that's the famous line out of this poem that we have seen many times. My supernatural power and marvelous activity. Everyday mundane activities. Do we see that as greatness? Of course not. Everybody's doing it. You know, the hindrance, what is sitting on us, what we create and sustain and nurture and nourish that is sitting on us is creating such a barrier. You know, we, we may think this is juvenile expression of stupidity. You know, what happened in Washington a couple of days ago. But the question is, where are we in this? What are we protecting? What do we have to free ourselves of? Rather than, of course, you know, comment on what happened in Washington and the way this administration is alienating everybody else. Now, Einstein said, the true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. The true value and the true power of a human being is determined by the level of which we liberate ourselves from ourselves. How do we do that? We look and we see and we encounter how the self operates. And again and again, we don't give into it. We don't give it. The leg, the mouth, the eyes. We give it nothing. And then what happens? And it's very important that we do that because, as I mentioned last week at the beginning of Zazenkai, we are liable for each other, whether we recognize it or not. We are. It's not a choice. Being one with all things is not a Buddhist idea. How do we know? Well, it's not because we chant it. The Buddha himself never said, believe me because I know. He said, here is what I have experienced. Now, and here is what I suggest as a practice to experience it as well in your life. 
You want to experience it? Try it. Give it a shot. Don't believe what I say. Don't believe what anybody says. Bring it to your life and try it. Walk with it. And verify it for yourself. And then you will know. And we are liable for each other because if we don't do that, we create further chaos, further suffering, more mess, more rejection, more alienation. And there's no way around having to confront and work with our restlessness and sense of agitation. So we have to learn how to bear witness to our own pain and discomfort in the nakedness of our zazen. This is what we need to be doing during zazen. To experience it. Not to run away from it. The whole point is to turn towards another way. And it's something we have to keep reminding ourselves. Because it's very easy to slip away from that, especially after practicing for a while. To slip away from that and then start to think, use that time to think and to figure out stuff. It's not what it's about. Because there is nothing we need to figure out. Well, there's nothing we can figure out. Nothing we need to create, to cook, to put together. But we don't know that. As long as we try to figure things out, we don't know that we don't need to figure out anything. So we have to learn to be, to sit in the midst of our own pain and suffering and agony and memories and regrets, whatever else is going on there, and not run away from it. Which is not something we do often, you know, Society. I recently read an article that talks about using technology to teach meditation. And it says, most people are very comfortable relating to their phones or computers. More comfortable even than being in relationships with themselves. It's very true. It's very sad, but it's very true. And it says that this can create an easier on-ramp for people to access meditation and mindfulness. So rather than diving right into the deep end of just being with, with their sensations, emotions, and thoughts, and the environment, let's try to find something to buffer that. It's true. Maybe not always with computers, but it's true that we look for ways to escape the pain. But can we really escape it, is the question. Does it really work? Does it not show up in another way in our lives? Now, the challenge in learning how to be one with reality is in avoiding the temptation to create our own standards, our own creations and paint everything 
everything we see with our own personal colors. And the challenge is in knowing how to be human the same way other sentient beings know how to be the way they are. To know how not to create, to know how to forget the self. To forget the gap and be without knowing. Be without knowing. Walk without knowing. Speak without knowing. Zhuang Tzu, Chinese Taoist master who lived 2,300 years ago, said, if the goat would know it's a goat, its legs would bump into one another and it would not be able to walk. If the fish knew it is a fish, it would sink into the bottom of the river. The goat, the fish, the mountain, and the river know themselves in a knowledge that does not know. Only humans try to know themselves through knowledge that knows. And that's why he cannot be human in the same way that a goat is a goat, a fish is a fish, a river is a river, and a mountain is a mountain. It's not that we don't have the capacity. It's just that we are confused. And the purpose of practice is to make us realize it, shed light on our confusion, and put to rest the need, or the perceived need, to create something, to figure it out, to figure out our lives. Who said we need to do this? Who said we can? Are we not wasting tons of energy trying to do what is not needed and impossible? To know without knowing is an innate ability everybody has, yet it takes a great deal of trust and determination to realize it. And since it is an innate ability, there's no need to follow anyone. We just need to again and again deeply observe and get beyond our own thoughts, our own opinions, our own standards, and beyond all teachings, including Buddhist teachings. And the challenge here is in no grasping whatsoever, neither our own standards nor other people's standards. In the time of the Buddha, there was a town called Kesaputta, and in that town lived the Kalamas. And the people of the Kalamas, and that was a town at the crossroads where a lot of ascetic sages and venerable people stopped by and tried to teach, to expound their teachings to those people. And they got quite confused. So, when the Buddha came by, they asked him, what should we do? Who should we believe? How do we know what to do? How do we know who's right, who's wrong? They all make sense. So this brought up what's called the Kalama Sutra. And, and this is the Buddha's reply. And he said, now Kalamas, 
Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scriptures, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourself that these qualities are skillful, these qualities are blameless, these qualities are praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. You should know for yourself. You do the work. Because it's a lot easier right, to be told, trust this. Okay, great, now I'm going to trust that. No, no, not trust that. Well, but I, okay, fine, I'll trust that. It's a lot easier than confronting our own pain and discomfort and challenges. Give me a book in which it says what to do and what not to do. As Mumon said, if you want to know gold, you have to bring it into fire and to look for it in the midst of fire. There you will find gold. So in his commentary to the Kalama Sutra, Tanishara Bhikkhu says, although this discourse is often cited as the Buddha's carte blanche for following one's own sense of right and wrong, it actually says something much more rigorous than that. Traditions are not to be followed simply because they are traditions. Reports such as historical accounts or news are not to be followed simply because the source seems reliable. One's own preferences are not to be followed simply because they seem logical or resonate with one's feelings. Instead, any view or belief must be tested by the results it yields when put into practice. And this is the bottom line. All of it comes down to our practice, or to practicing correctly, when put into practice, and to guard against the possibility of any bias or limitations in one's understanding of those results, they must further be checked against the experience of people who are wise. The ability to question and test one's belief is the appropriate, in appropriate way, in appropriate way, is called appropriate attention, the ability to recognize and choose wise people as mentors is called having admirable friends. Now, this is for another talk, what this means. But the point here, the point here is to practice and test it by ourselves. But that does not mean by your own standards. It's very important to, to note Daibo talked last week about knowing how to beat the drum, and at some point there was a question about, the question was, sounded more like, does that mean I march to my own beat, to my own drum? Because that's what it seems to be saying. <clears throat> this is why this commentary is so important, and that's not what the Kalama Sutra is about. It's not what the practice is about. 
It's about putting down our own standards and other people's standards. It's about seeing for ourselves what's real and what's not. It's about seeing that our own standards are also creations and we create them to protect something. What are we protecting? Are we willing to be vulnerable? Are we willing to look like and sound like fools? Are we willing to lose everything? Or to be called losers? That hurts. Of course it hurts. But again, there's no way around it. Shibayama said, the role of a koan is to take away all established ideas and accumulated knowledge from the student, including standards we create, and drive him to the extremity and beyond. Then, from the abyss of the great death, she is revived as a new person in the new world and completely, and have a completely new vista. Zen has the great depth and transparency to bring about the fundamental change of one's whole personality in the realm where ethics has not yet started to work. Not just ethics, actually. Nothing is formed yet. At that level, we find gold. And he says, in the essential point, if, they say, if we don't do that, the essential point is missed. Right? If we don't work with koans in this way, they become a book of mere speculations. And then he adds that this does not mean that ethics and morals are not necessary in Zen. On the contrary, ethics has to be the natural outcome of Zen life. Of course, because we realize that all is one, one is all. Of course. Ethics are essential. Silla is a part of our practice. In the process of not grasping, of working with not grasping, there has to come a point of actually letting go, of releasing the hand that is grasping. And it's terrifying because we truly feel as if we are falling. And we are falling, actually, whether we recognize it or not. Who does not change second by second, moment by moment? Who does not disintegrate? Who, whose structure actually works? There is no such a thing. We are free-falling. The good news is there is no ground. So you can't get hurt. So fall away. Who says it's wrong? Who says we have to fight against it? So 
So Shogun's second barrier says, it is not with the tongue that we speak. And you know, before we can use our mouth freely, we need to understand the meaning of no eye, no nose, tongue, body, mind. We need to understand the negation of all things seen as separate from each other leads to complete and total affirmation and embracing of all things. And it results in free speech and free action. There's a story about a Chinese Zen master, I don't remember his name, who didn't want to teach, actually. He, was, he became a Dharma successor, but he realized how difficult that is as a life. And he said, I'm just going to escape. And he decided to live with the homeless people and blend with the homeless. So the emperor heard about his uh, attainment and wisdom, and he wanted to bring him out to, to assign him to a monastery. And uh, they knew he's among the homeless, but they didn't know how to find him because he looked like a homeless, everybody else. And so someone said he likes melons, watermelons, I think. So the emperor decided to, uh, he told his uh, servants to, to bring lots of watermelon to the homeless, but they have to, there's one condition. Before they can take, get the watermelon, they have to ask, they have to tell them, the servants have to tell them, if you can eat this watermelon without using your mouth, I'll give it to you. So then, of course, the, all the homeless people, one by one, didn't know what to do and did not get the watermelon. So they finally got to this guy and he, without hesitation, said, if you can give it to me without using your hand, I will eat it without using my mouth. And then they found him and they dragged him out and he was assigned a monastery. <laughs> I think they did eventually give, give the homeless people the watermelon after that. Um, they didn't want to tease them. But uh, can you eat this without using your mouth? Can you move without using your legs? That's the question. How do we do that? What do we have to forget in order to awaken in a reality of not moving, not speaking, or moving without moving, speaking without speaking? Where is that reality? How far are we from being there? Shogun's third barrier says, why does an enlightened person not cut away the red strings dangling from the legs? And it is said that Shogun came up with this third barrier when he was on his deathbed. And the red strings refer to our attachments and delusions. You know, true realization sheds light on interconnectedness of all things. Independence interdependence probably be more appropriate interdependence interconnectedness is true independence or realizing interconnectedness so to realize that right we realize but it does not exclude when all things are realized as one attachments delusions and suffering cannot be excluded 
Nothing can be excluded when we truly realize that all things are one. Nothing and no one. Like it or not, it's one. In fact, you know, realization leads right back to the mess of our daily existence. With the understanding of moving without lifting a leg and speaking without using the tongue. That's the difference. There lies true spiritual power. The verse says, Raising a leg, I upturned the scented ocean. Lowering my head, I looked down at the fall jhana heaven. You know, everything is included. All the three periods of time are included. Everything before, everything during, everything after. Well, where are the gaps? There's no place to put this gigantic body, and it's true. Because this gigantic body is you. Is you beyond you. And then the last line, he says, now you finish this poem in your own words. This is where our practice comes in. You practice it. Put aside everything you think you know, everything you think you don't know, everything you read, everything you heard, including Buddhist teachings. Put it all aside and dive deeply into beyond all conceptions, beyond memories, beyond knowing. Who are you? Right there. 